Will you please welcome to the stage our guest moderator, TV and reviews editor of Heat magazine and regular broadcaster on television and radio, Boyd Hilton. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much for coming. Um, before I uh, bring Rob on our main uh, event, so to speak, um, we thought we'd have a look at um, an exciting clip. This book is available as an enhanced ebook, which means you get lots of bells and whistles on it, lots of video and extra bits and pieces. Um, and I thought we'd start before Rob comes out with a tribute to him that is part of this ebook. Uh, one of Rob's best friend in real life and a famous person in his own right. And Rob has a nice chat with them and they discuss what's so great about Rob Brydon. Let's have a look. If you had to sum me up, this is a very vain thing for me to do, but it's about me. If you had to sum me up in just 350 words, <laughs> what would you say? Well, I'm going to say something very nice about you because I think you are unique, I think, because you you, st you know, you came to our attention doing Marion and Jeff, which was you know, incredible, detailed, and heartfelt performance, right? And then it turns out you can do an impression of Ronnie Corbett <laughs> and Tom Jones, so you can sort of do that broad stuff as well as that, because I mean, the performance in in you know Marion and Jeff and lots of other things you've done them were like uh, you know like really great actor's performance because I think a lot of comedians you know and I'm guilty of this too is you sort of demonstrate a character particularly <laughs> in the sketch show yes you know yeah, you yeah. sort of that you feel like there's a gap between them and the character because they're sort of telling you this is a funny character mm. you know so there's an element of just distancing but you don't do that when you act so you're obviously a really really fine actor and then also you do all this broad stuff as well you know the le which is fantastic, because not many people can do better. Yeah. And you have been a very, very caring friend in, the, in my darkest era, uh, hour. Your darkest was, area? Darkest area. I don't want to go to your darkest area <laughs> No, again. you were a really, you're a really you know, kind, uh, loving friend. Oh. So, so I'm, very, very very, I'm very pleased I know you. Oh. Well, this, this puts Steve Coogan's contribution into a cock hat, doesn't it? What did he do? He still assumes a sort of superiority, doesn't he? Not just over you, but over me, <laughs> over everybody. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, I saw Around the World in 80 Days. It wasn't that good. I did like Alan Partridge, I'll be honest. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Brydon. Hello, 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 hello. Hi, Rob. Good evening. Hello. Take a seat. Hello. Um, David Williams, who is, as I say, in real, he's pretty much your best friend, isn't he? No. No? no, no. Oh. I, I wouldn't say that. Um, no, he's a, he's, a, he's a very good friend of mine. Yeah. yeah, he's one of my best friends, yes. Yeah. yes. We'll go on to, as I say, we'll tread a path through the whole, the, your life and the book and everything within the next hour. Splendid. But as far as Williams, you met him first on Cruise of the Gods, is that right? Which this is a programme called Cruise of the Gods, which they repeated a few nights ago. I don't know if yes. anybody was lucky enough to enjoy it, but... Um, it was a, a sort of comedy drama set on a cruise ship. It starred myself and a young Manchester actor called Steve Coogan. Um, what yeah. became of him, yeah. we don't know. No. Uh, it had David Walliams in it before he was well known, and it had James Corden in it when he was unknown, and it had a very unknown Russell Brand yeah. as an extra. And Russell actually got sent home from the ship for his carousing. 
and uh, it was all a bit, uh, bit awkward for Russell. But you knew in the book you say that you could see even then that Russell was going to be yeah, a star. Yeah, he's very. See. Russell's very charismatic, and um, he used to go off whoring. There's no other word <laughs> for it. There's not many people you can in the public eye you can say that about without fear of, you know, some kind of something coming back with Russell. Oh yes. Uh, he used to go whoring, and um, he would come back the next day with stories. And he, we'd be on this ship, and he would be on the deck telling me what he'd done the night before. There I was, stood, <laughs> beckoning finger from the darkness. Beck, should I enter forth or should I resist? No, the heady aroma was too much. And, and I thought, who the hell is this? He was unknown, this guy, you know? He was just like, he was an extra. And I said something that you never say to extras. Who, who are, no. They're adorable people, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I said, I said, I think you're going to be a big star. You're, and you would never say that no. to somebody, you no. know. But he just had, he had something, you know. And he was either going to end up in prison <laughs> or, uh, or in uh, Hollywood. Wow. And in terms of David, you ended up sharing a room with him, sharing a bed with him, <laughs> I believe. Yes, yes, yes. How did that happen? Well, we, we were filming on this ship and... Um, we actually ran aground. You know, we got a hole in the boat, something you think will never happen. Um, let me turn like that, and then I can give some attention here as well. Um, you know, when you're on a boat, if you're a little bit nervous, I was a bit nervous on there because some nights, there was one night, there was a storm, and I was terrified. I actually put my clothes on, thinking, in the middle of the night, thinking, oh my God, we're going to have to get off the boat. I was so scared. And I had pictures of my kids by the side, and I was going, oh. And you, I could see out of the window the waves. Anyway, I eventually went to sleep, woke up late the next morning for the call for filming. And I said to the first AD, I said, I'm so sorry, you know, but the storm last night. And he said, what storm? <laughs> and I was the only person that had noticed it. So I was ready to evacuate, and no one else had noticed this was happening. Anyway, w we ran aground. We hit a rock, big hole in the side of the ship. We had to change ships. And on the second ship, there was nowhere, there weren't enough cabins. People had to share. David and I shared and went in to see the cabin. And it was basically, it looked like a big double bed. But it was actually two single beds put together. So we said to the maid, could you separate the beds? And she moved them apart by about that much. <laughs> so we thought, what the heck? We put them back together. And it was like sleeping with him every yeah. night. Yeah. And you've become... And, and that was where we, became, we became good friends. But I would, I would get up to go to the loo at night, and he's not a very good sleeper. So I would walk around the bed and go into the um, loo, and I'd be having a wee. And from the bedroom, I'd hear, Oh, my Rob. <laughs> oh, my Rob. <laughs> impressed, as if he was impressed by the sheer ferocity of the flow. Yeah. Well, who wouldn't be? Exactly. Who exactly? Um, but let's go back. So when you decided to write this book, your autobiography, mm. um, had you read other... I mean, a lot, a lot of... I um, had read other books, but yes. Other, books, other celebrity <laughs> books recently. Oh, Did you I'd think... read upwards of ten books <laughs> by this point. Amazing. Did you think immediately, right, I'm going to have the whole story? Did you think... Because you stop it kind of just I did when think you reach... feature mainly myself, yes. But you stop um, it when you reach... Just when you reach the, the kind of... Uh, the, bit, the height of your fame, really, don't yes, you? Yes, yes. Why did you do that? Why did you decide to concentrate on the struggle, in a way? Well, it, it stops in 2000, when I first had some success with Marion and Jeff and uh, Human Remains. It seemed, when I was talking to publishers, we, you know, we met a few publishers, and I was telling them my story, it just seemed that that was, that was the story. It was the years of struggling, because I did struggle for a long time, and it, yeah. it's all detailed in the book. Um, that seemed the story, and it seemed a good dramatic point, you know, to finish when I finally get where I wanted to be. 
Because um, when that happened in 2000, and I suddenly found myself being written about in papers, and they would do profiles, and I would read them, and they all said, apart from shorter than I expected, they all said that. <laughs> but then they said, um, and of course he struggled for years. And I was a bit surprised. I thought, did I? I've done all right, haven't I? Because I've been doing kind of okay with voiceovers and things. But when I did the book, when I went back to my old diaries and I looked at them, I thought, bloody hell, yeah, because there was so much. I don't know, you've read it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's so much rejection yeah. and so much just banging on the door again and again. Yeah. And um, at one point, you can't pay your mortgage and you're, yeah. you're, you need money and you're, you're kind of desperate. But, yeah, the interesting thing is I'd forgotten that. You know, it's amazing what you keep in your... If you'd said to me, did the bank ever refuse to pay your mortgage? I'd have said no. But then I went back into my diaries and there it was. They, they'd said no and we were actually selling pieces of furniture. To, to, raise, to raise money, to raise dosh. So it's interesting, I think, how you put those bad memories out of your mind. Um, but they're all in the book. Yes. <laughs> but there's some happy stuff as well. Your childhood Very little happy, happy stuff. How would, how, how would you describe yourself it's as a It's a child? very happy childhood. But I'm thinking, oh, I should have made it a bit more traumatic. You know, people yeah. like a bit of drama, yeah. you know. Um, no, it was a lovely childhood. Somebody said it's like a child's Christmas in Wales. You know, it's... Um, but I, I was very fortunate. I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a loving family and... Um, was always encouraged <coughs> with um, my acting ambitions. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was always told I was talented. I was always told I was I was good. So I always had that, you know, inbuilt in sense of, <laughs> of arrogance. I don't know, <laughs> but. Um, you, so you were a bit of an attention seeker, you were saying. You wanted to perform. No, no, Boyd, that's not what I said. Okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, I. I um, yeah, I like to perform. I mean, yeah. we had a vicar at our local church. We used to go to church on a Sunday, and our vicar, Isloin Lewis, very Welsh, used to hide me in his robes. And then Hello. he would go like that. Okay. And I would leap out of the robes <laughs> and do a little turn. I mean, nowadays, if a <laughs> priest was <laughs> found to be concealing a small boy, I mean, it, you know, bring back the news of the world because we, we, would, we would have him. But... But in those days, simpler times, <laughs> uh, you know, the congregation wasn't happy if I hadn't popped out of those robes at least once. <laughs> and then what did you do? What was your turn? What was my turn? Yeah. They said I would sing a song yeah. or I would, uh, I don't know, do a funny face. Or something. I don't know. And I was very young. From quite a young age, you knew you could do voices. You could do yeah. impressions. What, was the, what were the first impressions you knew you could do? Well, I think I used to do stuff from Sesame Street like Bert and Ernie and Kermit. There was a comedian in Wales, who I, I, you won't know unless you were from Wales, called Ryan Davis. And he had a little cast of characters. I used to be able to impersonate those. <clears throat> and I would do teachers at school. Um, Hartley Hare, who remembers Hartley oh, yeah. Hare? There we are. These, yeah. He was a puppet of a hare, of a rabbity hare, not a hare yeah. hare. Yeah. And uh, on, on an ITV show. And he used to talk like this. <laughs> Got a bit of a sore throat, but his hand was on a stick, and he'd go, hey, hey, hello, hey, like that. And there was another character called uh, called Pig, and I think Pig talked like that, and he should say, Hartley, come on, hurry up, Hartley. And my routine involved Hartley in the bathroom, how shall I put it, having a bit of me time. <laughs> and Pig would be knocking on the door, are you in there, Hartley? And Hartley, because his voice was already a bit of a, he'd be going, I'll just be a minute. And my school chums thought this was hilarious, you see. It hasn't aged well, I'll be honest. 
<laughs> I don't know. And it rarely features in my act now, but... Um, <laughs> rarely. But that's the kind of thing I was doing. Yeah. Um, <coughs> as I said, in, in, the, in the enhanced e-book, is that what it's called? The yes, e-book? it yes. is. It's an e-book where a normal e-book is just the text yeah. on an iPad. Yeah. You can do that to it. Yeah. Shall we all have a go? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Let's all have a go. That's nice. That's good. Okay. Good. Um, the ones that didn't do it, I have more respect for you than the ones who did. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, an enhanced ebook is video. Um, uh, we do audio footnotes. Wow. Because I just I'd seen a few of these ebooks and I was frankly disappointed because yeah. I thought it's a great opportunity for for more. But really, they seen the ones I saw tended just to have hyperlinks. Do they yeah. still call yeah, them yeah, hyperlinks? Yeah, I think yeah. So. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so I went out and I did interviews with David and Steve Coogan. Well, the reason I mention it now is because there's a lovely clip of your, you and your dad. All oh, right, and my dad talked about yeah. a bit touching your child. So let's have a look at this clip now, which I think is fantastic. And I haven't put in the story about the orange. Was it in Greece? No, that was in Spain, and um, you were about six or seven at the time, and I clearly uh, remember. Uh, the three of us were walking along and the Spanish guy comes along with a donkey and all these uh, earthenware pots and jugs hanging off it, all very, very colourful. And we stop and we look at these things and the first thing this uh, Spanish guy does, he's got this plastic uh, rubber orange in his hand and he squeezes the orange and a huge penis shoots up. And the first thing you say is, I love one of those. Whereupon your mother says, you certainly will not. <laughs> but, but because uh, we were so taken with this guy's presentation, <laughs> we then decided we'd buy a couple of his pots and things. And we still have them out now at home on the top of our landing, actually. And quite often when I'm um, feeling rather low, I look at those and it lifts my spirits because I think of that delightful organ that was exhibited on that occasion. You and think uh, of his inflatable penis. Yes, yeah. yes. And everything yes. seems nice. Perfectly formed. Yes, yes, uh, well in proportion. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was the on holiday, Rob, yeah. Wow, my dad's been Brilliant. applauded at the Apple, so I'll tell him. I'll phone him up and tell him. He seems great, though. It seemed funny. Did you get, can you see the... The line of humour from your dad to you? Well, my dad lost his hair, you know, but I've got a beautiful head of oh, hair. Yeah, apart from that. You know, it's, it's yeah. inexplicable. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I can see a lot. I'm very like my father. A lot yeah. of my mannerisms. I see my, my humour as being a real combination of my mother and my father. Right. That really clearly. And I, I'm sure we're all the same, aren't we? We all grow into our parents. Uh, and I see it more and more as I get older. Uh, so often it's almost as I've gone on to stars in their eyes and I've said, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be my dad because I'm so <laughs> like him, you know. Yeah. But that's nice. It's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely, yeah. Um, I want to talk about your first kind of serious getting into performing is like when you studied drama. Yes. When you, and you were kind of, I thought the, the bit I loved in the book is when you were forced to study dance <laughs> and you didn't, you didn't like it. What yeah. was wrong with you? Why didn't you want to study dance? Well, I had no interest. I, when I, I went to drama college at the Welsh College of Music and Drama in Cardiff, 1984, hard to believe, and, um, or not, um, <laughs> And part of, the, part of it was dance, and of course I'm not a dancer, and uh, I think I proved that unequivocally. Um, so yeah, we had to be in our, you know, everybody had to do it, you had the leg warmers. This was the age of fame, I want to live yeah. forever. Um, yeah. I didn't. Um, <laughs> and it was, uh, that was part of it, yeah. I just liked performing. I only went to drama school, not for any great desire to 
study dramatic art. You know, I'd loved acting at school and I just wanted to carry on and do that all day, really. And your heroes were like people like Pacino and Hoffman and De Niro, you mentioned those. I like, I like the short, dark actors. Yes. Pacino, De Niro, Corbett. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I, I loved those guys. And I was um, Dugray Scott. You know Dugray Scott? The actor Dugray was a contemporary of mine. We were really good friends. And we used to, um, we used to watch Pacino films on the TV whenever they were on together. And... Uh, he was very intense, Dugray, yeah. you know. He was always going to be a big, big hit. And, but did part uh, of you want to be one of those big <coughs> Yeah, I did, I did. And then you grow up and you kind of go, oh, that's not really me, is it, you know? Yeah. I said to someone today, I think you kind of, there's a saying, um, ride the horse in the direction that it's traveling. Yeah. And I think Dugray rode his horse in that direction. And, you know, I, I, was, I always wanted to do a comedy. Yeah. But there's a little part of you that thinks, maybe I am the kind of Pacino character. <laughs> And another part of you that says, no, you're not. <laughs> you're Uncle Bryn. You're a closeted, repressed technophile from Barry. That's who you are. And I think you should embrace that. Yes. You know? But did the other people in your group think, oh, yeah, he's the funny one? Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound conceited, but I've always had that. I've always had people of... People have never been anything other than encouraging. I mean, apart from, you know, once <laughs> when, I, when I got into the business, uh, they stopped being encouraging. Right. If anything, they were discouraging. Yeah. But certainly my childhood and then um, being at college, yeah, I was thought of as the, the kind of the funny one, I suppose, yeah. yeah. But now when you left college, of course, you, you did then have a series of jobs which weren't exactly what you wanted oh, to do necessarily. terrible jobs. I ended up on the shopping channel, um, presenting on the shopping channel. And that's, you know, for somebody who thought he was Al Pacino, you know, say hello to my little friend. It's a magi mix. <laughs> um, you know, it's, yeah. yeah. Although, at the same time, it was London. You know, if you've, if you've lived in Port Talbot, London is another galaxy. So if it's the shopping channel that gets you to London, there's still a part of you thinking, oh, well, okay, I'm in London. Maybe now I'll move into serious drama or comedy. Yeah. But you won't because no casting director is going to go, Look at this. We've got this guy here. He's on the shopping channel. Yeah, yeah he, he'd be good for our movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like at the same token, I used to, I don't know how many, maybe there are any, some actors, aspiring actors in the audience tonight, but there used to be a thing in the 80s and 90s called PCR, which was a printed <coughs> casting breakdown telling you of productions that were going into production. And, you know, desperate actors like me would subscribe to it and you'd get it. Ruth Jones and I used to share it, you know, kind of go half each on it. And we show it to each other. And um, I remember they said they were making Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Kevin Costner. And I wrote to them for a part. I mean, in what alternate universe are the producers of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves going, okay, guys, I think we got the whole, wait one fucking minute. There's a guy here been working on the shopping channel. Man, he could be good. I mean, but, but in your head... You think you're so desperate. It yeah. seems like another world, yeah. you know. You describe yourself in the book as that point when you're doing lots of different kind of TV presenting work, not very interesting, as a poor man's Keith Chegwin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, rather unkindly for Keith, I follow. I usually follow up by saying, a poor man's Keith Chegwin, if such a thing could be imagined. Um, uh, hello, Noel. Um, yeah, I was, I, well, this was before the shopping channel. I was a sort of roving reporter. I fell into radio. I got offered a radio job. Basically, I had a comedy double act at college. 
And that got me noticed by Radio Wales. They offered me a regular presenting job, which I took because it was a job and it was money, you know. Um, but then I fell into radio and television presenting, you know, the kind of and finally stories, you know, like a, women, a woman who breeds ducks in West Wales. And, yeah. and, all, and I would always try and make them funny. And my director would always try and stamp me down and, and just make right. it journalistic. Yeah. And I thought, what am I doing? When you talk about the radio, so I thought it was interesting. You talk about Jimmy Savile as being, you know, yeah. really an inspiration in some ways. Well, tell you what, Jimmy Savile, I mean, some of the younger people may not know who... Um, I'm not looking at you when I say the younger <laughs> people, sir. No, no. <laughs> that would be satirical. Um, I, no, Everyone you know, you know Jimmy Savile, right? So Jimmy Savile is a famous British broadcaster. And um, when I did this first radio job, I feel guilty for saying that, and I'm going to direct everything to you. Um, I wish I hadn't said it. Um, I, we, our first radio job was doing this thing that then got me the other stuff. And Jimmy Savile was the main guest, and I was doing a turn. And Jimmy Savile said two things that I've always remembered. He came up to me and James, my partner, and he said, he said, oh, oh. He said look at me, look at me. He said, you see, he said, look at me. He said, I can't dance, I can't sing, you know, I can't act. He said, he said, so what do I do? Well, I turn up at events, I smile, I wave. The punters say, Jim is having a good time, therefore, so are we. That was his philosophy, right? I said, well, and then the thing that really stayed with me, and it's very true, he said at the end of our little time together, he said, he said you know what? He said, he said, it's very, very hard to get to the top in this business, but it's a damn sight harder staying there. That's very true. I think now more than ever, yeah. because I think now with people's access to broadcasting or narrowcasting, whatever you want to call it, you can make a name for yourself quite easily with a bit of controversy. But staying in a position where you can, you, you're given opportunities to do good work is hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's what requires the work. Before we move, we've got, an we've got another clip from the uh, <coughs> enhanced ebook of, of your colleague at Radio Wales. Yes, yes. Let's have a look. Okay. But you went on to do another show, and I contributed to that. You did. I went on to... I was still on Radio Wales, and I went on to do the afternoons, and I did a show called The Rush Hour, with... Um, uh, we used to do a spoof telephone piece based around Elvis Presley, the pop singer, which is a kind of a thing that we were doing on Rave. Mm. We used to do a sort of little Ask Elvis piece. Um, and we had an idea where Elvis was living in a house in Borth, with a bunch of celebrities, basically. So I would interview those celebrities. Basically, it was you on the phone doing this array of uh, characters. Do you remember who we had on that? It's whoever I could impersonate. Yeah. So Anthony so Hopkins. Elvis was married to Megan. Uh, Elvis had a Welsh wife called Megan, and I would phone up. Let's do it now, then. Yeah. Phone. Hello, can I? Hello, um, yeah, hello. Do you have to go, hello? As well, if that's you're me, that's phone. my yeah. I swapped over, got it the wrong way around. Hello? Is that Megan Presley? Yes. It's Alan Thompson here at oh, BBC Radio. Oh, hello, Alan. How are you, Megan? Oh, oh you've changed. <laughs> oh, who had all the pies? <laughs> How are you, Alan? Well, you're there very well, I can see. I tell you what, if we go overboard in the ship, I'll be clinging to you for ballast. <laughs> anyway, Alan, do you want to speak to Elvis? Is he there? He is. Well, before I put him on, let yeah. me see who else is here. Okay. And so, then, and then we go well, through and the list. Before, and then we'll come... Hi there. Can you tell what it is yet? I'm like to Rolf Harris. Rolf Harris. Who else would I do? Um, you would do, um, as you say, Anthony Hopkins, who would yeah. always... Um... Anthony Hopkins would always have received a letter from a young drama student, said, Dear Sir, dear Sir Tony, no need for that, don't bother, don't call me Sir Tony, it doesn't matter. Dear Sir Tony, um, he said, I've been awarded a place at RADA, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, but I haven't got the money needed to pay for fees. Would you help me with a small contribution? Well, this touched me when I read it, and I went straight to my bureau, sat down, 
Stone wrote on a piece of paper, No, sir, we're not, uh, uh, your work size, give me, uh, uh. and he would, would always uh, ball them out, <laughs> wouldn't he? He'd never give them the money. And end up doing an impression of his role on the bounty. Yes. As, uh, right around, around the horn, horns, a yeah. good way. Around the horn, yeah. Um, and, of course, Tom was there, Tom Jones. Yes, yes. <clears throat> um, Al Pacino. Yes, oh. the same ones I'm doing now. Yeah, yeah. and um, then then we'll always finish with Elvis, and it was a kind of late Elvis, a drugged up Elvis, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was a later Elvis. Again, I got on my phone like this, and talk in this way, but I don't know, sir. I just want to entertain. And that's all. <laughs> and, and, and then he would he would do a version of a with yeah. you on the guitar. Yeah, but it was meant to be me doing a version of a popular song of the day yeah. in a kind of odd way. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Do you practice your impersonations? Do you spend hours practicing? No. They are incredible. No, not really. They just no. come to you naturally. And yeah, I just do people I like. So yeah. it's very much the sincerest oh. form of flattery okay. with me. You know, yeah. If I'm doing somebody, I like them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say was your big break, though, as in getting, to, getting you to the point where you were on TV, as we well, know you now? Well, it was Marion and Jeff yeah. and Human Remains. Yeah. That, that got me uh, opportunities. And I, you know, since then, I've not really looked back. But... And then Gavin and Stacey took it to another level. Uh, how, did, how did that happen? How did Marion Jefferson up? You came up with oh, Keith Barrett, the character. I'd had the character of Keith Barrett for some time. I used to do it with Al on the radio. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and then I, but, and I was trying to get, uh, I was trying to get um, acting work. And I, I couldn't get anything decent. I was getting little parts in some sitcoms and stuff. But nothing that ever gave me any momentum. And, I, you know, as an actor, you want momentum in your career. You want things to start moving. And... You know, people to get excited about you and opportunities to come your way, and it's very hard. So I got a, out of the blue. I had a call from a casting director I knew saying that there was a film being made called Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, and the role that I could read for was the nerdy traffic warden. And I nearly said no because I, all the roles I was getting were nerds. I, I you know, I, I say in the book I think that when you're at drama school, you play a lot of roles, and that's all well and good, but it gives you a very false sense of your future career because once you're out of college, you basically will play the roles that you look like and you better know what you look like and not be under any illusions. Unbeknownst to me, I looked like a nerd. So I played nerdy policeman, nerdy uh, reporter, nerdy presenter, and here was nerdy traffic warden. And I remember, I can remember being in the kitchen in the flat we lived in then, thinking, ah, oh, why, you know, what's this? It's not going to do me any good. It's not going to progress anything. Why do it? And it was only because it was a feature film. And I thought, well, it's a film, okay. Um, so I went along and met Guy Ritchie, the, you know, then unknown, read this part, which was, you know, I mean, if you've seen the film, all I do is I say, you can't park here, ouch, and that's about it. <laughs> uh, so anybody could do it. You'd have to be hard pressed to, to fail that audition. Really, um, and I got the part and did it. And the film, it was a funny thing actually filming it because they phoned the day before and said, ah, we may, we may have to put you on hold because Vinnie Jones was in the film, has been arrested for threatening his neighbor. I sound like Ronnie Corbett, I don't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> Vinnie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> he's been arrested for <clears throat> threatening his neighbour with a shotgun and we don't know if he's going to be released in time. <laughs> I said, oh, all right, yeah, okay. Anyway, then they thought, no, it's okay, he's, he's been released. So, so I went in the next day 
And uh, I got there about midday. They said, look, we're not ready for you. Go and sit on the lunch van. I went and sat on the lunch bus. And I'm sitting there reading the paper. And a presence sits down opposite me, but I don't know who it is. And I'm turning the pages. And there's the story about Vinny. And there's a picture of Vinny in the story about him having been arrested. And then I pulled down the paper, and there he is. And it was like in a Western or something, you know, <laughs> when there's an escaped convict, you know, and they, they read the thing, and there he is opposite them, and they go, so I did, I did that film, and when it came out, I got mentioned in Empire Magazine, which was my Bible then. I loved films, and, and I was amazed that it had mentioned me because it was such a small role. And that made me think, well, this is an opportunity to promote myself, and I, I wrote a script. I was earning a lot of money from voiceovers by that point. So I wrote a script of four characters, one of which was Keith Barrett, and I went out and shot it with my best friend, Reese, and I paid to have an edit. You couldn't do it on Mac, you could do it on a Mac now, of course. But then it was, you had to get an edit suite at Lardy Dark. Did all that, and, and that, it was that tape. Mm. That tape was seen by Hugo Blick, who went on to co-write and he directed yeah. Marion and Jeff. I showed it to Julia Davis, who, I, who I'd known for a few years anyway, and she showed it to Steve Coogan. So it was that tape. Mm that started everything. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it's very similar. Because we, Last week we had Ricky Gervais here mm. in the Apple Store, and his big thing was he made a tape of David Brent, the character. Yeah, I, th yeah I think you have to... Um, it's so easy because, you know, if, if you can show someone a DVD or something, and if they like it, they like it. Yeah. The hard thing is getting them to show them something they like. But if they see something and they like it, well, there it is. Yeah. It's formed, you know, and, and it's ready. Yeah. Um, and that was what... Hugo and I then, Hugo was at the BBC, he had some money available to make a pilot. We developed the character together. Steve had just formed Baby Cow Productions, his partnership with um, Henry Normal. And he got it produced, yeah. he got it made. And both of those shows, Human Remains and Marion and Jeff, ended up almost arriving at a similar time, didn't they? they you they, were suddenly they, yeah, there. I had a run and, I, and at, the, at the time I wasn't happy because Marion and Jeff was 10 weeks, it was 10 minute shows, 10 episodes. It went out from September, and then just before that finished, Human Remains started. So I felt I was kind of blowing my um, cover, as it were, all in one go. But in fact, it was good because, you know, I think you could watch Marion and Jeff and think, oh, well, that's him, that's what he does. But then Human Remains showed me doing six different characters. So that was quite. And they were both helpful. incredibly well received, I think. They, yeah, were they like... won a lot of awards, and they, yeah, I had great reviews. And, and it was amazing. I mean, it was a real kind of whoa. Yeah. Because I'd been, and you'll you see if you, if, you, if you steal the book, you, you'll see that um, <laughs> it was. I mean, I really had been slogging away for years trying to get ahead, you know. So you must have been just like, must have been overjoyed. When, do, when you, do you remember when you read the first reviews, for example, of Marion and Jeff, and you remember what you thought, what you, how you felt? <laughs> I smiled. Yeah, oh, I was great. Yeah. yeah, it was great. I remember the, the morning after Human Remains started, I was in Brighton, and Julia and I, we were still maybe editing some of it, before, maybe perhaps. We went to a cafe and got these reviews out, and they were fantastic. I mean, the Times review was out of this world, right? And we were feeling very full of ourselves. And somebody came into the cafe and said, excuse me, and, 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 I, and I think I went, uh, yes, <laughs> waiting for the compliment. And he said, I've just put my car on a yellow line. Could you keep an eye on it for me? <laughs> so I learned um, then never to take anything for granted. Brilliant. I'll give you guys a chance to ask questions um, in a minute, so be thinking of anything you want to ask. In the meantime, I think you're going to read right, some yeah. of. I'll read a little bit. Um, because you can obviously download the book from iTunes, and you can get the audio version, which I've got, which is amazing. Eight hours it is of you reading the audio. Is one. it eight hours? Eight hours. Oh, yeah. my God. Amazing. Right. 
Well, I, there's the, a bit that I really like uh, is, is a bit when I was about when I was 16, I worked for a while in a, in a nightclub in Port Talbot in a disco it was called then, called the Troubadour, and uh, this is so this is this is me now reading that bit of the book. <coughs> I haven't started yet. <coughs> Here we go. Here we go. Uh, the Stonely. Now that's another club from earlier in the book, so imagine you're aware of that. <laughs> The Stonely was one of the very few... I'll try to do it not as Ronnie Corbett. The Stonely was one of the very few nightclubs at which I spent any time as a teenager because I, wasn't a, I didn't drink as a teenager. And that's me adding on, and that's not in the book. <laughs> if, if I go like that, OK, that's added. Don't buy the book and then go, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Refund. Uh, the other was the Troubadour in the Aberavon Shopping Centre where I worked weekends while in the sixth form. Seeing the name of the place in print is a little misleading, lending it an undeserved air of sophistication when you bear in mind that the glasses were made of plastic. If readers are at all familiar with a nightclub called the Troubadour, it's more likely to be the one found on Santa Monica Boulevard in Los Angeles, a legendary venue famous for the role it played in launching the careers of, amongst others, Elton John, James Taylor and Carole King. To really appreciate my memories of the Port Talbot Troubadour, it's vitally important that you clear your mind of any thought of the Los Angeles venue. They were very different. I worked behind the bar of the Port Talbot branch, handling the glasses, the plastic glasses, on Friday and Saturday nights during the last summer before leaving home and heading off to college. In doing so, I joined a group of regular employees who would have been a scriptwriter's dream, so clearly were their characters defined. Had it been a sitcom that was being written, then a convincing argument could have been made for their individual and collective entrapment, the state in which we are told all successful sitcom characters find themselves. There was the single mum, Julie, who I'm guessing would have been in her early 20s, with lots of makeup but the perfect skin of a porcelain doll. Then the young lovers, Sandy and Andy. Honestly. <laughs> Sandy worked behind the bar and Andy helped the DJ. Open brackets. Did he? I don't know how anyone writes an autobiography without a team of helpers. <laughs> Close brackets. And then there was Barbara, the older, matriarchal member of the team. Was she 40? Was she younger? I don't know. I was 19. It was ages ago. I do remember her regarding me with amusement as a nice boy who'd lived a pretty comfortable life up till now and had perhaps not experienced much of the earthier side of life. I can't remember what it was exactly. But one evening, she responded to something I said with an emphatic, what you need is a good fuck. <laughs> Perhaps I'd asked her what it was she thought I needed. <laughs> the resident DJ at the club was a jovial fellow with the violently heterosexual name of Roger Knight. <laughs> he worked on a raised dais from where he enjoyed a panoramic vista that encompassed the entire dance floor and most of the rest of the club. From his lofty eerie, he had control of the sound system and lights, not just the flashing and spinning disco lights as they pulsated in a never-ending festival of colour, red, blue, green, ooh, purple, but the house lights too. When one of the not infrequent fights broke out, Roger would press a button, like Christopher Lee's Scaramanga reaching under the table to fire his gun, switching on the ceiling lights nearest to the affray, and calmly point to the newly illuminated offenders so that the bouncers would know where to go. He did all this without breaking a sweat, still managing to mix seamlessly from KC and the Sunshine Band into something new from level 42. 
If you've ever worked in a bar or disco, as I suppose this was, then you'll know that the running of the place is a curious blend of show business, the hospitality industry, and a hint of the underworld. It has to be said that some of the clientele would have struggled to keep up with the etiquette requirements at the Henley Regatta and could be quite direct in their responses to what was going on around them. One chap, to whom I served a pint of something or other, screwed up his face in disgust and spat the mouthful of liquid straight back out at me, saying with admirable economy, that tastes like piss. <laughs> Thus expressing in four words what even the most gifted food critic would struggle to contain within a page. The many scuffles and fights I witnessed while working at the Troubadour weren't limited to the boys, although it was usually the young men that started them. The girls would often get involved too, in the traditional, leave it, Wayne, he's not worth it, manner, <laughs> before pulling at the mid-80s fashion-clad arms of their beloved, before uh, getting a taste for the action and piling in themselves. Fans of the macabre will be pleased to hear that the bloodshed wasn't confined to the dance floor. One of the most disturbing sights I have ever witnessed was revealed to me all those years ago in the ladies' toilets after an especially unpleasant mishap. Earlier that evening, I'd noticed a bit of a scene developing around the entrance to the conveniences and the subsequent appearance of an ambulance crew. Once the club had closed and we were clearing away the plastic glasses, one of the bouncers came over to me, gesturing towards the toilets and smiling. Come and have a look at this, Rob. The bouncers were always very friendly to me. Huge, hulking, brick outhouses of men, often with children's faces. <laughs> they seemed to take to me. There was something of Androcles and the lion to our relationships, although I can't honestly claim to have ever removed thorns from their toes. We went into the ladies' toilets to be met by a sight that wouldn't have been out of place in Brian De Palma's Scarface. A toilet was lying in pieces within its cubicle. There were pools of blood on the floor and blood splattered over the walls. It was all I could do not to be sick. The bouncer told me what had happened, shaking his head and tutting as he recounted the story. Apparently, a girl had been standing on the then unbroken toilet, looking over the cubicle divider to chat with her friend, one booth along. The toilet had given way under her weight and split open. As she fell to the ground, the jagged porcelain of the shattered toilet had sliced into her leg, and hey presto, say hello to my little friend. <laughs> it wasn't a bloodbath every night, though, and I had many good times amongst the regular staff, whose number I was swelling during the busy summer holiday period. As I look back now on those few months of work, which would lead up to my leaving home and going to college, the whole episode takes on the air of a Neil Simon play. Me, the young innocent, taking my first faltering steps into the adult world, bumping up against all sorts of characters who, in light of my age and the setting in which we found ourselves, related to me for the first time more as an adult than as a child. Substitute Brighton Beach, New York for Port Talbot and Eugene Jerome for me, and my story could remain roughly the same without any impairment of the audience's enjoyment. All the staff welcomed me and made me feel as though I was one of the team, although looking back I was more than a little wet behind the years, and I'm sure for this reason alone a great source of amusement to them all. I was yet to be initiated into the ways of the fairer sex, with no sign of a girlfriend on the horizon, despite many efforts on my part to woo my classmates at Porthcall Comprehensive all of whom seemed to have taken a vow of abstinence when it came to anyone answering my description. But surely, you protest, working in a nightclub must have presented you with some opportunities to explore new possibilities. 
You'd think so, wouldn't you? If I might be permitted to employ the terminology of the football fan for a moment, perhaps I can relay to you an episode in which it can be said I missed an open goal. It was Hawaiian night at the Troubadour. <laughs> an exciting prospect for staff and locals alike. I remember arriving for work in an optimistic pair of colourful shorts and a suitably Hawaiian shirt to be met by a wolf whistle from Barbara. Ironic, I've no doubt. Julie would have treated me to a sympathetic, ah, and Sandy probably joined the chorus with a giggle. There were two bars at the Troubadour, the big main bar, which would be staffed throughout the night by three of us, and around 25 feet away to the left, in the darkness on the edge of town, a smaller facility, which would be manned solo. For this reason, I always referred to it, rather wittily, I thought, as the Millennium Falcon. It would not be the last time I would find myself explaining a joke. <laughs> on the night in question, after a period on the big bar with my colleagues, I was sent over to man the Millennium Falcon. This gave me a great sense of pride, to be handed such responsibility so soon into my tenure at the club, and as my short white legs crossed the floor space, clad only in my colourful tropic-suggesting shorts, I was determined not to abuse the trust that had been placed on my young shoulders. Now, the thing to remember about the smaller bar was that you were on your own, and the till was your sole responsibility. If there were any mistakes or discrepancies at the end of the evening, they were down to you and you alone. It was expected that you would make good any shortfall, a serious proposition given the modest wages that the job provided. With this in mind, I was extra careful to give the correct change and to always keep an eye on the till, which was positioned behind and to the right of me, lest someone attempt to dip their fingers therein. With hindsight, this overly cautious approach cost me an evening of delights which would, I've no doubt, have altered the course of my future relationships with women. At the very least, I would have started the race at the same time as the other runners, rather than chasing desperately behind them, baton in hand. <laughs> it's fair to say I handed over my baton much later than my friends. But back to the little bar. There I was, working away diligently in the Hawaiian style, when at some point I found myself talking to two girls as they leaned against the bar. I can remember absolutely nothing about their appearance. I remember a great deal about their actions. As the conversation progressed, what were we talking about? I have no idea. It occurred to me that the girls, and certainly one of them in particular, were becoming increasingly fruity. The one leaning in ever, clo one leaning in ever closer as her friend looked on approvingly. I remember them urging me to come out from behind the bar and join them so that we could familiarize our young selves. I was hesitant. My lack of success with girls at this point, leading me to believe the only rational explanation for such interest on their part was their being involved in an elaborately planned sting, the design of which was to separate me from my beloved Till, <laughs> at which point their stripy shirted accomplices would drop from the ceiling, SWAT style, and empty the till of all the carefully counted money. To encourage a positive response on my part, the more forward of the two, while her helper looked on, offering encouraging glances, began to suck my finger. She was sucking my finger. It may have been two fingers, it may even have been three. It was all I could do to stand upright and not pass out. In between slurps, she would keep imploring me to come out from behind the bar. I wanted to. God knows I wanted to. I think it's fair to say I'd never wanted anything more in my entire life. She had managed to wangle out of me the fact that my mother's red Datsun cherry was parked outside. 
and suggested it would be the perfect vehicle for the three of us to drive off in towards her warm and cosy flat on the nearby Sandfields estate. I pictured this beautiful abode as she sucked and licked my fingers ever more salaciously, while simultaneously glancing nervously over my shoulder to check on the till. By now, there were two things stopping me. One was the till, the other was the risk that my flimsy shorts, robbed of the shielding properties of the bar, <laughs> might give too clear an indication of my conflicted state. <laughs> I have to say that nowadays, in such circumstances, I would probably leap up onto the bar and demand a spotlight. <laughs> but in those long-gone times of fantastically frequent and often unaccountable downstairs developments, I usually found myself reacting with great self-consciousness. And so it went on the freshest stalemate known to man, until, bewildered and defeated, the two of them sloped off in a highly aroused state of defeat, and I was left standing proudly next to the till, still intact. <laughs> On many occasions since that day, I've played out in my mind the events of that most anticlimactic of evenings, struggling to remain true to the details as they unfolded. Rather like a screenwriter, adapting and altering a much-loved book for the cinema, the only thing I change is the ending. In all my nights at the Troubadour, this was the one and only time that sex, or at least the faint possibility of sex, reared its head. This and the ever-present, can't-rule-it-out scenario lurking in my overdeveloped adolescent imagination that one evening, quite without warning, Barbara, in the manner of a short, Welsh, slightly aggressive Mrs. Robinson, would take me in hand and teach me the ways of the world. She never did. Thank you. <laughs> Brilliant. And you can listen to eight hours of that if you download the uh, audiobook. Um, so we've got. I have to say, I wasn't <laughs> intending to read for that long. I do apologise <laughs> if, if you thought for a minute I was going to do the whole book. <laughs> I, I was expecting to do about half of that, but I was looking for a nice out. Um, I've got one thing, two things I really want to ask yeah. you. One is um, your obsession with Bruce Springsteen. I it love comes Bruce. up a lot yeah. in the book. What is it about Bruce? I don't know. I tell you what part of it is. I do think people like people they can see a slight resemblance to. And I'm not saying I look like the god that is Bruce. But there's a, there is a slight, you know, some people say there's a slight resemblance. I mean, not as much as there is with Anton Dubeck, I'll give you that. But um, <laughs> I, th I do seriously think that people look at young actors, you ask people who they like, yeah. and they look to people that they can see a bit of themselves in. I think there's a kind of wish fulfillment, a bit of narcissism, it's a whole combination. But I've loved Bruce for a long, long time, and, and in the book I talk about my love of Springsteen mm. and my eventual meeting with yes. him, which was as anticlimactic. <laughs> um, he came over for the Darkness on the Edge of Town documentary, and I know a man who knows him, so I got introduced, and I was a bit pissed, and I said, um, I thought, what am I going to say? I prayed that maybe he'd seen the trip on an aeroplane or something. You know, you go, all right, you're that guy. <laughs> you know, all right. Good luck with the new series of Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I went up to him, and I said, uh, I went, I went, I went, oh. Somebody said, uh, my friend Mark Hagen said, he said, Bruce, this is Rob, very famous comedian in Britain. And he went, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> and, and I said, Bruce, it's really, and I gripped his hand a bit too tightly, really, 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 really <laughs> good to meet you. And he went, hooray! <laughs> he does that laugh, he said. Um, and I thought, oh, and then to make it worse, I said, thanks for the moments. <laughs> Just to make sure he left our encounter convinced that he'd met a lunatic. 
<laughs> and the other, you mentioned the trip in that thing. I mean, for me, I mean, I love all of your stuff, obviously. Of course you trip, do. Of course you do, boys. I, I watch it constantly. Some of it, it though, I've noticed, has only got three stars. That's another hardly story. Hardly anything. Hardly anything. Um, but the trip, I think, is people absolutely love the trip. I mean, everywhere. And when I said I was, I was interviewing you today, people were saying, ask me about, is there going to be another series? What's going to happen? I don't know. There's talk of it. I'm in two minds. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the thought of doing it is lovely, but I feel what we did was great, and it had the element of surprise. So I'm, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm sure that if Michael wants to do it, Michael Winterbottom, yeah. I'll end up doing yeah. it because he's very persuasive. Okay. Uh, yeah. I hope so. And any more questions? Yes. Oh, ah, they're all now, now they're coming. That's we'll better. Some of you in the front. <laughs> hello, Rob. Hi there. Hello. Hey. 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 It's nice to nice to be talking with you. Yeah. Um, great to have a fellow Welshman in the audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have such an ear for accents. Yeah. I really can pick the slightest thing. <laughs> um, yeah. I just I just wanted to ask, um, as a young actor. Yeah. Um, if you Thank were to you. try, <laughs> if, bless you. I'm 46. <laughs> this light is very kind. Um, I guess. I guess what I want to ask is, if you were trying to break into the industry now, oh god, um, would oh, you? I would imagine you would. <laughs> too tired. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, would yeah. you start writing your own material? Yes. Would you get on YouTube? Would yes, you? Yes, I would do all that. Would you start um, making your rounds around uh, different improvs and, yes, and things like that? I would. You know, the, here's here's what I think. The thing to do is, uh, and it applies in lots of areas of life. It's really simple, but hard to do. <clears throat> but it's a simple theory. You've got to have something that somebody else thinks will make their life better. That's all it is. Hmm. So if you've made a demo tape, you've got to have a demo tape that a producer or director thinks will make their life better because they'll, have that, they'll be able to make that program. You've got, to, you've got to see something. It's as simple as that. Or if you're auditioning for a play, you've got to make the director think, well, if he or she were in my play, it would be a better production. I really think it does come down to that at the end of the day. And that's hard to do, of course. Not easy to do. But for a long time, I used to think, why am I not getting breaks? And a lot of it was just in my head. And I used to think, why don't people know all the things I can do? You have to show them. Don't tell them. You know, show them. So that, that's my, I really believe that, that it's, some, it's just trading. Someone has to think, I want that. And then the viewer at the end has to feel, I want to watch that show because I'm going to feel better, or I want to go to his play or his stand-up show. Why do all these people go to see Peter Kay? Because they think it's you know, Michael McIntyre, because they think it's going to give them a good feeling. They're going to feel good. And I think that basically filters down all the way. And once I kind of saw that, things got a bit easier. Thank you. Thank right. you very much. And there was some, yeah, just was there. almost Yoda-like quality <laughs> to that answer, wasn't it? I surprised myself there. Actually, a lot wiser than I realized. Oh, passing it along. Yeah, there we go. Right. Hi, Rob. Hiya. Um, how much would you say uh, going to Welsh College uh, influenced your career? Great to have an American with us. <laughs> <laughs> the humor of reincorporation. Yeah. <laughs> How much did it influence it? Yes. Yeah, and do you reckon you'd be as successful now without it? Oh, careful what I say here. Um, yeah, I think I probably would if I'm being if I'm being brutally honest, because there was a. I loved my time there, and I'm a big fan of the place. But if I'm going to be honest with you. 
would I have fared less well for not going there? No, because of the path my career took, because I went into seven or eight years of radio and television presenting. I learned good ground rules there, but all I really did there was exercise my love of performing, really. I'm not sure that I learnt... I, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> it's a great place. I don't know how much, I've just worked with Ken Branner in, uh, I call him Ken, uh, <laughs> in, in, in a play in Belfast, and he used to tell me about what they did at RADA, and it seemed, I mean, I'm talking about year 20, 30, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, and it seemed a lot more tougher there. I, I loved my time at the Welsh College, and I came out confident, so that's important. Uh, they didn't do that thing of breaking you down and building you up again, which I know some of the more extreme colleges do. Really, you know, being at drama school is a chance to practice. Because once you, Dustin Hoffman said a great thing. He said, you know, he said, oh, he said when you're, I won't do that. He said, when you're, a, <laughs> when you're a painter, you can paint. And when you're a poet, you can write poetry. But if you're an actor, it's kind of hard to act without looking like a lunatic. So you, that's what being in a drama school gives you the chance to do, is to practice. But I, I loved it there, and I'm, and I'm doing an evening there soon. So uh, let me make that very clear. I loved it there. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more questions. Lady, yeah, lady there. there, yeah. Thank you. Um, hi, Rob. Hi. I, um, I saw you on Saturday and Sunday in uh, Belfast. Did you? Killer, and, oh. Uh, I loved it. it Thank you. Hilarious. This is the play I was doing in Belfast. It was a farce <laughs> with, uh, with Ken. Um, you enjoyed um, it, did you? I did. It was absolutely fantastic. Oh, I lovely. Laughed. Thank you very much. I never laughed for Thank about you. a year. Um, so did you, did you enjoy stage acting? Is there going to be some more of I it? I loved it. Um, and I is loved the painkiller going to transfer? Possibly, to maybe. I, we, we don't know, but, but maybe. Um, I, I loved it. I'd never done a play since college, really, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a quite a new discipline, being part of a company, you know, not just being on your own on a stage as a stand-up where you can do whatever you want. Here you didn't want to drop the ball for the team. But in acting with Branagh, you know, I mean, it's, there's so much to learn, you know, from him. And he's a lovely man. And, I, yeah, I loved it. I've lost my voice a bit because I shout a lot in the play. The gentleman there. Yes, yes. final one, I'm afraid. We've got to go after this. Good Thank you. Hello, good timing. Hey, well. Hello. <laughs> uh, of all the things you've done, you yes. know, television presenting, now acting, writing a book, etc. what do you enjoy the most? And where are you, you going to go in the future? What is your next big project? Uh, what do we look forward to? I don't know, really. I mean, I've, this, this year has been all about writing the book um, and then building up to doing the play. Uh, next year, I've got some holiday time booked in. And then, I don't know. I mean, I have these things like, would I lie to you, the panel show? I, uh, I don't know if, uh, if that's going to come back. I, I'll wait and see. Uh, my, my talk show, I don't know if that's going to come back. We'll wait and see. The painkiller, I don't know if we're going to do more of that. I'll wait and see. Um, you know, the cornflakes are there, though. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's a definite. Going to be shooting some more of those pretty soon. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, it's a boring answer. I, 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 like, I genuinely do like everything. I took so long struggling to get to a place where people were offering me work. And I've always liked a lot of things, you know. I, I've always loved talk shows. You know, I go onto YouTube now and I look up Martin Short on David Letterman and, and, and people like Charles Grodin and uh, Don Rickles. And I love all that. So I, I, I kind of do a bit of everything. So there's the danger of being a jack of all trades. But who cares? Because I'm enjoying it, you know. And uh, I made a conscious decision about four years ago, actually, that I would do everything that I liked, that I had the opportunity to do, rather than holding back and saying, I'm just going to be an actor. Um, because I thought I enjoy it all. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. 
Well, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. But great last question. And uh, thanks to you all for coming. <laughs> bit of edge to it. I like <laughs> yeah, that. It. it was an exciting question. Wow. Thanks to you all for coming. The book is available to download in various forms on iTunes, and it is brilliant. I particularly recommend the audio version. That's just me. Um, and thank, all that needs to be said is thanks to Rob Bryden. Thank well, you very much. Let me thank you all as well for coming. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.